It was a traumatic experience, so traumatic that grandma decided to sue Disney. This happened back in 1995. Grandmother, Billie Jean Mattei, this grandmother brought her three grandchildren to Disneyland and they had a wonderful time. It's a great day. But at the end of the day, as they were leaving the Magic Kingdom, they were robbed at gunpoint out in the parking lot. Grandma lost $1,600, lost all her credit cards and jewelry, so it was bad. But what bothered this grandma the most was what happened after the robbery. The security officials at Disney brought the family back to their office to interrogate, see if there were any leads that they could follow up on so they might catch the one who committed the crime. But as the grandmother and the three grandchildren were sitting in that security office, they noticed that this office was located right next to the dressing room for the Disney characters. So while grandma and the three grandchildren were answering these questions about the robbery, those little ones, those three little ones, could look in the next room and see Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy changing costumes. And they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They were shocked. They were dismayed. They, they said, Grandma, do you see what's happening there? What just happened to Mickey? You mean Mickey Mouse isn't real? You mean Donald Duck is just a human being in disguise, wearing a disguise? Goofy isn't really Goofy? You mean all this stuff that we saw today was just pretend? And so, because of the emotional distress that her grandchildren went through that day, Grandma decided to go to court and sue the Disney Corporation. My grandchildren witnessed something they never should have seen. Now, think about those little ones. Think about those three children. They came to Disneyland that day expecting to experience something magical. And yet, before the day was over, their dreams were shattered. They were forced to rethink what they really believed about Mickey Mouse and all his friends. Well, have you ever had a moment like that where something you assumed to be true, something you always accepted as a fact, and then you discovered it wasn't true? Or have you ever had an experience that made you second-guess yourself, have second thoughts about some of the things you had always trusted before? And has that ever happened to your faith, your faith in Jesus? Has your faith ever been, I mean, seriously challenged? Maybe some, something traumatic happened to you and it it caused you to have some questions and what you thought about Jesus. Or maybe something took you by surprise and just knocked your life off balance for a moment. And, and you began to have second thoughts about the Lord and what you truly believed about him. And trust me, when you go through a moment like that, it can really shake you up. But here's what I want you to understand. Number one, listen, every day, everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, Everybody, every day is going to have some kind of doubts. Now, most of the time, it's, it's minor. You know, we find ourselves second-guessing some of the things we said. And did, did I really do the right thing back there? Did, did I make the right decision? Or throughout the day, every day, there's going to be those moments when these feelings pop up in our hearts where, where we're, uh, we feel a little unsettled. We're, we're kind of uncertain. We're kind of up in the air about some of the choices we need to make. Should I buy this or should I wait till another time? Or do I go out, go out with my friends today and play a round of golf? Or would it be better just stay home with a family today? E every day, everybody's going to wrestle with some kind of doubts. Now, granted, some of those doubts are going to be a lot more serious than others, especially when our faith in Jesus is put to the test. And it will be tested. You need to understand, sooner or later, every follower of Jesus, and this won't just happen one time, again and again and again, every follower of Jesus is going to have those moments of doubt. I mean, consider the first disciples of Jesus. For three and a half years, they had Jesus right in their midst. Every day, they could see him, touch him, and talk to him. For three and a half years, there was nothing more real than having Jesus right there with them. And yet, there were many times in that three and a half year period of time 
when the disciples did not understand what they were seeing or experiencing. Look at what happened after the resurrection. Here's the greatest miracle of all time. You know, Luke tells us in the book of Acts during that 40-day, 40 40 that 40-day period of time, here's Jesus showing himself to many different people in many different places, giving every one of his followers many convincing proofs that he is alive, he is real, and he can be trusted. And yet there are three occasions after the resurrection when the closest friends of Jesus, the ones who spent the most time with him, had these doubts. Can, can I believe what I'm seeing? Can I really trust what is happening here? For example, Luke chapter 24, the Bible tells us the disciples are hiding behind locked doors. The government officials have killed Jesus. They crucified him on the cross. And these disciples realize, hey, it won't be long before these officials put a bounty in our heads too. So they're scared. They are really scared. But they've also heard rumors that Jesus has come to life again. Two people that they know really well from Emmaus have just shown up and said, we saw him today. He was out there in the road with us. In fact, he stopped by our place for some lunch. And as the disciples are standing there trying to process all, all this information, all of a sudden there is Jesus standing in the same room with them. I mean, the doors are still locked and nobody has a clue how he even got into the room. But there he is, larger than life. I mean, it's a glorious moment. And how do the disciples react? Did they run over and give Jesus a great big hug and say, Oh, Lord, it's so good to see you again. Uh-uh. Luke 24, 37 says they just stood there, startled, frightened. And then verse 41 says they were disbelieving for joy, happy, but, but also hesitant. They were amazed, but still feeling kind of uncertain. I mean, is this a dream or is this real? And why? Why were these disciples having doubts? Well, they've just been through something traumatic. I mean, it was just a few days ago. They saw their beloved rabbi and friend, their, their leader of the Lord, executed in the most brutal manner possible, crucified on a bloody cross. And even though Jesus had warned him about, I mean, he talked to him about this many, many times before. He'd warned him in advance, this is exactly what's going to ha happen. And yet when it did happen, it just took him by surprise. I mean, they just never figured it was actually going to end up like this. So when they saw Jesus dying on, the, dying on the cross, man, that just shattered every one of their hopes. And now all of a sudden, here he is alive again, standing right there in the room with them. Man, that, that, that seemed too good to be true. Now, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice how Jesus responds to them. Notice how Jesus responds to these doubts and fears. He does the very same thing that the Bible tells every one of us to do. You, you know, you remember Jesus had a bunch of siblings, a bunch of brothers and sisters. One of them was this guy named Jude, and he wrote a book in the Bible. It's right there at the very end of the New Testament, Jude and Revelation. Jude, just a little letter, one chapter long. Verse 22, the Bible says, now, now hear this. The Bible says, be merciful. Be merciful to those who doubt. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't get on their case. When people have questions about faith, about their faith, you just be there for them. Just be there to encourage them, to dig deeper. Hey, let, let's find some answers to those questions that you have so that you can embrace your faith more deeply. And that's exactly what Jesus does in Luke chapter 24. He does not scold the disciples. Fellas, fellas, after three years of witnessing the greatest miracles you've ever seen in your life, after three years of hearing the greatest teaching you've ever heard in your life, 
And this is the kind of response I say, I get. You just stand there startled and frightened. You still don't trust me? Come on, guys. Doesn't do that. No rebuke. Instead, Luke 24 says, Jesus sits down at the table and says, guys, I'm kind of hungry. You got something to eat? Oh, let me try that piece of fish. And as Jesus just sits there and eats that piece of fish, what's he doing? He's given his disciples time. Time to absorb what they're seeing. Time to process what they're now experiencing. Time for them to to sit down at the table with him and begin to ask those questions so he can provide some answers to those questions. Now, here's what's really fascinating to me. After this wonderful moment where it's become clear to every one of those disciples, this is real. He's alive. There are going to be two other times in the next couple days where these same disciples have those same doubts pop up again. Eight days later, Thomas gets a chance to see Jesus for the very first time. And then a few days after that, the Bible will tell us, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus had asked to meet with his disciples on a very particular mountain way up there in Galilee. And that day as he stood there, he gave them the Great Commission, going to all the world to make disciples of every nation. And yet, as Jesus is standing there talking to them, to those 11 disciples, Matthew says, some of them still had doubts. <laughs> Can I trust what he's saying? Can I really trust what he wants to be able to do in my life? Have you ever stopped to consider how whole books of the Bible deal with this issue of doubt? I mean, here are God's people suffering, or here are God's people struggling, or here are God's people facing miseries. They cannot begin to explain books like Job and books like Habakkuk. And why were those books put in the Bible? To, to reassure us, hey, it's, it's normal when you have some questions about your faith. You're not a second-rate Christian when you have doubts. In fact, in this life, in this world, nobody's faith is going to be perfect. And yet, God will use those moments of doubt to grow our faith and to make it even stronger. And that's what the book of John is all about. This is the reason why the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. He's writing to a group of Christians who are living about 70 years after Jesus died on the cross. So these are second and third generation Christians. These are believers who never had a chance to see Jesus for themselves. And they are living in a part of the world that's far away from the land of Israel. All those events that John's going to talk about here in his gospel, they never had a chance. I mean, that's way on the other side of the world. They didn't have a chance to check that out for themselves. And they're living in and around the city of Ephesus, and they're living in a place where right now they are being persecuted because of their faith. Every day they've got friends and loved ones who are mocking them. How can you follow Jesus? How can you put your faith in somebody who died on a cross, who died in such an awful and shameful way? Are you crazy? And it's starting to get through. Some of these believers are beginning to have second thoughts. Was, was I wrong when I made that decision to follow Jesus? Was I wrong to put my trust in him? And so John writes this book to help answer those doubts, to, to, to help feed their faith, to help reassure them, no, you weren't wrong. You were right to put your trust in Jesus. And I want to tell you why. Listen to what he says. John chapter 20. Let's look at verses 30 and 31 today. He talks about the purpose for this book. John says, Jesus performed many other signs. You can read about them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three books were written about 20, 25 years before John wrote this book. So there are going to be things you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that you don't find in John. John will never talk about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. He, he never mentions about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. He never talks about the devil tempting him out there in the desert. 
uh, in the book of John, you never, uh, you don't read the Sermon on the Mount. You have no record of the Lord's Prayer. You never hear Jesus teaching any parables. You never see Jesus casting out any demons. All that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But on the other hand, you'll find things in the book of John that you never found in those other three books. You read about Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. You read about Jesus washing the feet of the disciples on the night before the cross. It's only in the book of John that you read about that special visit that Jesus had with that man named Nicodemus and about the time when he stopped by the well there in Samaria to visit with a woman at the well. It's only in the book of John that you read about Jesus turning the water into wine and healing a man who'd been crippled for more than 38 years. In other words, here's the apostle John telling us, hey, I haven't told you everything I know about Jesus. But what I'm sharing here, I wanted to share some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't have a chance to talk about because I want you to see that the evidence for Jesus that he truly is the Messiah, that evidence is abundant and profound. You have many, many good reasons to put your faith in him. So he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, disciples like John, which are not recorded in this book, but know this, what I wrote here, it was written with a purpose. The things that are written here are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, he is God in our midst. And that by believing, by putting your faith in him, you may have life, real life, eternal life in his name. And that expression, in his name, it's, it's just a Jewish way of saying you find that life when you enter into a real, ongoing relationship with Jesus. So you see what John's emphasizing? John is emphasizing that believing is more than just a head thing, a brain thing. Hey, you just need to sit down and logically kind of reason this out. Here are the facts we know to be true about Jesus. I mean, that is a part of it. You need to know the facts. But there's so much more to this word that he's talking about here of believing in Jesus. You know, a lot of people today assume faith is like a family heirloom. You know, you got this antique coffee grinder. It's one of those wooden ones with a metal crank on top. And it sits on the shelf in your cabinet. I mean, it's something you never use. You never actually put any coffee beans in it. It's an heirloom. It sits there on the shelf, so occasionally you can look at it. And when friends drop by from time to time, you point it out to them and say, hey, see that antique? That was my great-great-grandpa's. Man, that thing has great value to me. It's a family treasure. And every time you look at the treasure, man, it stirs up feelings, strong feelings in your heart. You feel so sentimental. That antique coffee grinder is something that's really important to you. And yet, though it's a treasure, you never use it. I mean, you never consider that to be something necessary and essential for your daily life, your daily routine. No, you only look at it. Is that what our family and friends would say if they were describing our faith? Hey, it's always been a family tradition. Every year, the whole family goes to church on Christmas and Easter. Man, it just warms my heart to see every member of the family get dressed up for those special days. And hey, wouldn't think of having a wedding or a funeral unless it took place in a church building. Man, that just wouldn't feel right. Our faith is a family treasure. Yet the truth is your faith is only something you look at, something you feel. But it never changes who you are. It never actually makes a difference in the way you live your everyday life. That's not the kind of faith that John's talking about here. How do we know that? Because all the way through the Gospel of John, you'll see this. All the way through the Gospel of John, he'll give us example after example of what real faith looks like. For example, John chapter 2. John tells us about time Jesus is in the city of Jerusalem. 
and he performs many miracles, and he gets this fantastic response. The Bible says many of those who saw those miracles, they believed in his name. And you think, wow, that sounds promising. Yet the very next verse, John writes, but Jesus did not believe in them. Even though he got this wonderful response from the crowd, they're impressed. They're inspired by all the miracles he's performing. But John says Jesus refused to entrust himself to the crowd. Why? He knew their hearts. I know why you're here. You just want something from me. But you have no intention, no desire of actually following me. Yeah, they're impressed by all the miracles. They're eager to see Jesus do more and more of these amazing things. But there's no devotion, no commitment. There's no willingness on their part to actually surrender themselves to Jesus and actually allow Jesus to become the Lord of their lives, their everyday lives. Uh Uh-uh, I'm not signing up for that. Let me give you another way of thinking about this. What kind of faith are we talking about here? Say one day you go to a wedding. And as you sit there, you smile. As you watch the bride and groom up here on the platform, and as you hear them speak their vows to each other, you're touched. I mean, you are genuinely touched by this display of love. But three weeks later, you witness something that is so much more impressive. Three weeks later, it's a Sunday morning. You're coming to church. You drive onto the campus, and you pull in the parking lot. You see this elderly couple holding hands as they walk across the parking lot. You know them. You know this couple really well. You know they've been married for 55 years. And here they are still holding hands. Wow. Now there's a testimony of love that makes an even bigger impact on your heart than what you witnessed at the wedding. Why? Because at the wedding, you heard a promise being made. But in that moment, you had no idea if that dream was ever actually going to come true. But in that church parking lot, you saw that not just had a promise been made, but for 55 years the promise has been kept. In the best of times, in the worst of times, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, here are two people who never left each other. For 55 years they were there for each other. A promise has not only been made, a promise had been kept. Well, so it is in our witness for Jesus. Hey, it's one thing to be here on a Sunday morning and sing our praise and say our prayers and declare to the world, I trust Jesus. But when our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues at work, when they get a chance to watch us as we battle cancer, when they get a chance to watch us and see when we lose a loved one, when they get a chance to watch us and see how we just got cheated on a business deal or watch as we're struggling to care for a child with autism, and yet in the midst of all those difficulties, they still hear us say, but I still trust Jesus. Now those words carry a weight that they didn't have before because now our friends and neighbors can know that through all the good times and bad, through all the ups and downs of life, a promise hasn't just been made. A promise has been kept. Our God has always in every moment been there for us. Through the years, he's been good and faithful and true. And our faith in him has not just been some fad, some trend, some momentary feeling we had somewhere back there in the past. No. From the get-go, for the longest time, we've discovered, I can't do life without him. And I don't want to do life without him. Now, that's the kind of commitment that John's calling for when he encourages every one of us, put your trust in Jesus. So let me try to wrap it up this way. Two things. 
Think about this. Every day, everybody, and I'm talking both Christian, non-Christian, every day, everybody exercises faith. Everybody does. Every day, everybody is making some kind of surrender. They are surrendering themselves to something else, to something that is beyond them. When you step onto a train, when you hop onto a subway, what are you doing? You're surrendering. As soon as you get on that train and the door is closed now, your movement, your direction is no longer determined by you. It's determined by something else. It is determined by the power of that train. You have now surrendered yourself to a power greater than yourself. Same thing happens every time you get on, on an airplane. You've now put yourself in a mode of transportation that can take you to places that you could never get to on your own. I mean, in a matter of hours. You can literally be on the other side of the world. And how did you get there? Because you surrendered yourself to something greater than yourself. Every time you hop into a taxi cab or step into an elevator or sit down on a bus, you're now making an act of surrender where you're now allowing something else to move you and help you and bless you and take you to other places. Every day, everybody's exercising this faith. Everybody's making these acts of surrender. So John comes along and says, hey, if you're willing to do that, would you not consider surrendering yourself to Jesus who is greater and bigger and better than anything else we can trust in this life. And then John says, and think about this. Think about how Jesus is willing to help us, to help us take that step of faith. Isn't it fascinating? Right before these two verses we read today, verses 30 and 31, right before those two verses, you have the example of Thomas, verses 24 and 29. Here's this longtime follower of Jesus, but he lost his faith. I mean, he got to the point where he, I'm not sure I can believe anymore. I mean, he's just so shattered. Here's this guy. You talk about serious doubts. And yet, watch how Jesus helped him to surrender again. You remember that day when Jesus shows up to Thomas? What's the first thing he, do? he does? Holds out the hands. Take a look at the side. Do you see the scars, Thomas? See where they put the nails? See, see where they put the spear? What's he doing? He's offering him proof. Tom, Thomas, here's the wounds that I suffered for you. I went to the cross because of you. I went to war for you. I fought the devil himself to keep you out of hell and make it possible for you to go to heaven. Thomas, when it comes to being your savior, I'm all in. I am totally committed. I'll do whatever it takes in order to save and rescue you. Thomas, you can trust me. And then I think Jesus was doing something else too when he showed him those scars. I think he was telling Thomas and every one of us, hey, you got scars? I get it. I know what it's like to live in this world. I know how tough things can be. I've been in the battle too. Look what the world did, did to me. So you're hurting, you're struggling. Don't hide it. Bring it to me. You have doubts, you have questions, you have fears. Bring it to me and let me heal the wounds. You see, I think that's what the Bible is inviting us to do here. Surrender yourself to Jesus. And let him bring the healing and the hope that only he can provide. Let's pray. God, we believe. That, that's why we're here today. We believe. But help us with our unbelief. God, help us in those moments of doubt. They're sure to come. They've come before. They'll come again. Help us in those seasons of doubt. God, help us when we're troubled and confused and we can't see straight. God, let us see again and again and again why we can have confidence in you, why we can have confidence in your care for us. God, help us to believe today.
that your love for us, it's never going to fail. God, help us. Help us to believe. And I ask you for that help in Jesus' name. Amen.